Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Katie, I've noticed it's getting a little bit cooler. Yeah, just as <laughs> not in our office, but everywhere else. A little yeah. bit of fall in the air. Well, and, and when fall comes to Georgia, it's so lovely because it's normally so humid and hot here. And when fall comes to Georgia, I start to think about Halloween. And I know you do too, because as most of our listeners know, Katie and I love Halloween. We love costumes and just getting in the seasonal spirit of it all. I'm still trying to decide on mine because I'm torn between the Cannibal Queen or Polychrome from the Wizard of Oz series, but no one would know what I was. That was a Dragon Con inspired costume. I should mention (laughs) that. Um, So you are in luck if you like Halloween too, because we're going to spend October filling our slate with lots of fun, spooky, scary episodes. So we'll cover all sorts of bases. And since Halloween is, after all, All Hallows' Eve, we thought it would be only right to start our series with a visit to the underworld. Yeah, we're going to be taking a literary angle with this episode, though, and a historical angle, of course. And we're going to be visiting the underworld with Dante, who, of course, began his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, with a jaunt through the inferno. And we're going to look at five people who Dante cast into hell and try to figure out how they ended up there, why he put them there, what the whole story is. And we have to give a preemptive uh, thanks to Molly, who helped us with a lot of the Italian pronunciations and from who, me. who suggested this very topic. Oh, true, from the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast. So thanks, Molly. Uh, let's give you a little background. A 14th century Italian would recognize not only the allegories in the Inferno, but the real people. And you would recognize some of them, Cleopatra, Alexander the Great, Saladin, Cassius. And you'd also recognize um, biblical figures like Judas, uh, who's famously writhing in Satan's mouth, and mythological figures like Jason. But the 14th century Italian would also recognize people that they knew or that their families knew. Like, you know, if you picked up the latest bestseller and saw celebrities, politicians, and perhaps your own neighbors consigned to hell. Pretty serious stuff. So this is what makes the Divine Comedy not just a brilliant piece of literature and not just a powerful universal allegory that still appeals to us today, still can make sense to us today. It makes it, because it's so timely and local, the Inferno becomes a powerful weapon, too. And consigning your enemies to the worst possible torments imaginable, if you do that, you can taint their reputations for a literary eternity. So, yeah. Five points for Dante here (laughs) in this podcast. So for this list, we've picked five people who your average Florentine would have known, but who you may not know. Um, People like Cleopatra and Alexander, of course, get their own episodes after all, but these do not. So to understand who they are and why Dante cast them in hell, we have to understand, of course, where he's coming from. And when he wrote the comedy, he was in exile, which was a very serious issue for a man in the early 1300s. Yeah, something to think about here would be Romeo and Juliet. It's such a big deal when Romeo is exiled from Verona. It's not like you can just go move and settle down in the town next door. Your city is also your state. And without citizenship, you just become a wanderer. You have no family. You have no income. You're you're reliant on anybody who will help you out. 
So during his decades of exile, Dante lives as a guest in people's houses. He travels, perhaps all the way to Paris, um, and he's separated from his family. So writing this masterwork of literature in exile is a pretty awesome act of revenge. Well, and it's also a declaration of love for a city that he eventually realizes he's never going to be able to come back to. So... Why is Dante exiled? And you're going to have to bear with us for a little bit because this story starts long before Dante is even born. It comes out of a power struggle between the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope. And everyone wants a bigger piece of the pie. And as we've seen over and over in our podcast, Northern Italy is where it's at. It's where everyone is trying to expand his territories and expand his powers. And this starts back in the late 1100s, by the way. And Our city-states, these places like Genoa, Pisa, and eventually Florence, change hands over and over. We have about a million wars. But this division has two broad sides. We have the Ghibellines, who are the emperor's men, and they're generally considered more aristocratic as a group. And we have the Guelphs, the pope's men, who don't really want to be part of the empire, and they're generally more middle-class or wealthy merchants. Dante is a Guelph, and the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict in Florence actually starts over a jilted bride. Seriously. In 1215, the daughter of one noble family is jilted for the daughter of another noble family. The groom is stabbed in the street, because that seems to be a pretty common fate for a lot of these guys. And all the aristocratic families take sides. And we get years of this back and forth, the Guelphs in power, the Ghibelline in power. And every time power changes hands, let's trash the city, exile our enemies. You can see how this is a terribly unhealthy way for a state, for a city to function. Well, and Dante's born right in the middle of it in 1265. And as soon as he's of age, he throws himself into politics, as any good citizen does. And Things are going well for a little bit. His party, the Guelphs, are actually in charge, and he's elected to the Priory, and the Ghibellines are banished. So you would think that there might be peace at last, but we know better. Obviously not. The Guelphs start to fight among themselves, and they split into two subgroups. We have the Blacks, who still support the papacy, and the Whites, who think papal influence is getting to be a bit more than they bargained for. They're hoping for a little more independence. And this is where it's a little confusing, because they are still technically... They're all Guelphs. Guelphs. (laughs) (laughs) They just have different ideas than they used to. And, you know, this this division between the Blacks and the Whites starts over a weird family conflict, too. There's, I think, the children of a man who was married twice fight among themselves, and the children of the first wife, whose name was Bianca, they're the whites and the blacks, to set themselves up against their older siblings take on. Yeah, it's a bit much to keep track it's, of. It's pretty crazy. So this. just think of like broad political conflicts combined with family drama. So finally, in 1301, we get a white Guelph delegation sent to Rome. Dante may have been part of that group uh, to determine what the Pope's intentions toward the city are. And while they're gone, it becomes very clear indeed because the Pope's quote unquote peacemaker, Sarah says, (laughs) Charles of Valois enters the city, allows the blacks to take power and also allows them to nearly destroy Florence. So they're in power now. Blacks are in control. Dante is a white. He is a prominent member of 
uh, politics in Florence. So you can guess what happens. His political career is over. He's sentenced to death in absentia, and he never sees Florence again. His family still lives there. They're safe enough. His wife, after all, is a black. Um, but we've got Dante in exile, and that's where He's all alone. That's where we can start our story. So with this background, let's enter Dante's literary creation and see who's in hell. So we're going to skip past all the babies, because it makes us sad, and the nice folks in limbo. And uh, we're even going to cruise through a few of the earlier circles to start. And since the Guelph Ghibelline stuff is all fresh in your minds, we're going to start with one of their leaders who's now resting in a burning tomb, and his name is Farinata Dei Uberti, who's in the sixth circle with the heretics. Yep. So Virgil has escorted Dante through the gates of the city into nether hell, and they enter a plain that's covered in fiery tombs for every heretic. And Dante is called over by one shade in particular who recognizes his Tuscan accent as he's chatting with Virgil. And here's a quote, and all these quotes are going to be from the Dorothy Sayers translation, by the way. Thy native accent proves thee manifestly, born of the land I vexed with so great harm, a noble land and too much vexed, maybe. Why, it's Farinata, of course, and he's popping out of his tomb, and he's kind of snobbily asking Dante's name and his family name, and when he finds out who Dante is, and of course would recognize the the family name as that of a, a famous Guelph family, he reacts pretty snobbily, too, because... It's his enemy. Well, because in life he was leader of the Ghibelline faction in Florence, he would have been the enemy of Dante's ancestors long before this Black Guelphs and White Guelphs conflict began. And when the Ghibellines were exiled from Florence in 1250, Farinata allied with the Sicilian claimant and trounced the Guelphs at Monteperti, followed by Florence, and tossed out the party of Dante's family. And Dante, at least, gives him credit for convincing the Ghibellines not to destroy Florence. But he's still in the inferno, so why is that, Sarah? Because nearly 20 years after he died, the Inquisition found Farinata and his wife guilty of heresy. And specifically, heresy not believing that the soul lives on after death. So you can see that these political vendettas, this back and forth stuff, it lasts beyond death. It lasts into the grave. And I I mean, literally, because... This guy and his wife are dug up and then burned because of their heresy. 20 years, almost 20 years after their It doesn't dead. quite seem fair. So we're going to move on. And now Dante and Virgil approach the seventh circle where the violent suffer eternal torment. And soon they come to this dead forest. Each tree encases the soul of a suicide. And there they find Pietro della Vigna. And this is the seventh circle and the wood of the suicides. And Dante approaches a trunk pretty kindly and convinces him to speak. It's kind of a more tender scene in the Inferno. Um, and this is what the shade says to him. I am he that held both keys of Frederick's heart to lock and to unlock. And well, I knew to turn them with so exquisite an art. I kept his counsel and I let few men through loyal to my glorious charge. Did I remain and sacrifice my sleep and strength too. So he goes on to say that, you know, he, he was Frederick's right hand man, but hearts turned against him. And in an attempt to 
escape scorn and to attempt the charges that are leveled at him, he takes his own life. Quote, to my just self, I made myself unjust. So who is this guy? He was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II's chief minister. Yes, that Holy Roman Emperor, the one who the Ghibellines support. And he's a very likable, tragic figure in the Inferno. He's a man who rose from poverty to study law and eventually gained this important position at Frederick's court. He served as a judge. He wrote legal documents and codes in a very elegant form. He wrote poetry in Latin and Italian. And as we mentioned, he eventually became Frederick's right-hand man. He negotiated his marriage. He met with popes on his behalf. But uh, you know what happens to the number two of a powerful man. People start hating on him. We got so, haters. Yeah, in 1249, he's accused of plotting to poison the emperor. And he's done in with pretty quickly. He's arrested, blinded, and then he either dies from the wounds or because he commits suicide. Um, it's, it's a point that these medieval folks thought about quite a bit. What really happened to this guy? So Dante and Virgil continue on their journey and they meet lots of people along the way. They meet Dante's teacher. They meet a bunch of Florentine bankers. You can imagine Dante is going to put quite a few of them in hell. So finally, they pass into a new realm. It's the eighth circle of hell. And there you'll find flatterers and those who practice simony and sorcerers and thieves. And we get one of our most famous meetings in the Inferno. And it's actually one of the most cutting scenes in all of the comedy. And you'll find out why next. And as Dante approaches uh, the place where all of those who committed simony are, he sees them stuck feet up in these rock holes with flames dancing at their feet, which is how assassins were executed. And he approaches one that's this wriggling shade, and the shade cried aloud, Already standing there, art thou standing there already, Boniface? Why then, the writ has lied by many a year." And it's a mix-up. It's a mix-up. A cutting mix-up. A very cutting mix-up. So this guy who Dante's talking to is the Pope, specifically Pope Nicholas III. And it's bold enough to cast a Pope in hell, but Dante makes it like 10 times worse by implicating not just Pope Nicholas III, but Boniface VIII. And it's like he's not in hell yet, but he's going to be. It's a pretty... uh pretty dangerous and bold thing to do. Well, the popes share one hole and Nicholas thinks his replacement is already there to drive him deeper into the pit earlier than he was predicted. But so Dante has to explain, you know, no, I'm not the next pope. I'm, I'm Dante. Dante. <laughs> um, in fact, Nicholas goes on to mention that not just one pope is coming up, but two will be following him in to his hole eventually, Boniface VIII and Clement V. And it's important here, if, if we're going to be really considering why Dante is putting these particular people in hell, Boniface's role in Dante's exile, we mentioned him, Dante is not a fan of this pope. But Nicholas is actually a pretty impressive guy. He's born Giovanni Gaetano Orsini, and he really helped calm down tensions among the Franciscans. He also heads the Inquisition, and when he's Pope, he helps reform the administration of the Papal States. But he wasn't all Pope all the time. He was definitely very political, and he worked to 
fill up pretty much every slot there was with his own family. He made his family into cardinals, three of them. Um, he put others into high offices. He got quite a reputation for nepotism, a deserved reputation, and thus ends up in Dante's Inferno for simony, which um, could be the selling of ecclesiastical offices. Yeah. So there we go. But we're going to linger in this eighth circle a little bit longer because, to be honest, things get kind of depressing and very cold the further down we go. So after leaving behind Nicholas with this vision about his successors coming along, Dante enters the fourth Boge and comes to the sorcerers. And because their sight was twisted by distorting God, now their heads are twisted and they're forced to walk backwards. And he sees augurs, magicians, astrologers, and alchemists. And Michael Scott. (laughs) Not... That Michael Scott, although, although he would love to be a magician. I know, this, this guy <laughs> turns out to be the ultimate magician. It's a little jarring in the text. It kind of reminded me of reading Bleak House, and suddenly there's this very minor character named Michael Jackson in the middle <laughs> of things. We were not expecting you there. <laughs> but this Michael Scott, who is in the eighth circle of hell, is a wizard, or at least he gets a pretty big reputation as being a wizard. In reality, he sounds more like a translator and a scholar, but um, this is how Dante spots him. That other there who looked so lean and small in the flanks was Michael Scott, who verily knew every trick of the art magical. That does sound like the office Michael Scott. So Scott was born in 1175. He was Scottish, and he helped repopularize Aristotle in Western Europe by translating his work into Latin. But he was also an astrologer, you know, who knows, a magician. And um, from what Sarah was reading, it seems like astrologers were actually in pretty high demand in the 13th century. Just from our general experience on this podcast, it seems like every court needs an astrologer or two or an alchemist thinking of Catherine de Medici. I mean, how many, how many did she have? Plenty. (laughs) So regardless, Scott worked in Spain for a little bit and then in Italy, and he maybe even entered the Pope's service for a time. And later in life, he spent some time in the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II again. So So, yeah, there's our Guelph Ghibelline connection, Yeah, which has to pop up in, in almost all of these. Um, and that's Michael Scott for you, a, a new Michael Scott to add to your repertoire. So Dante and Virgil keep on going. And they move past the hypocrites in their leaden cloaks, past the thieves, who've got plenty of familiar faces there, past the sowers of discord. And finally, they reach the ninth circle, which holds the souls of traitors. And we know who's at the very bottom. But before we get to that, there's one particularly gory meeting, and that's with Ugolino della Gerardesca. So up until now, if you've read The Inferno, it's been pretty rollicking place. I mean, it's certainly not a nice place, but it's been loud. It's been crazy. There have been party all these cat. <laughs> party cat. <laughs> there have been all these wild sights. And now it's dead silent, and it's this very disturbing shift in the story, and that's because in this next level, everything is frozen in ice because these are the traitors, and they've so alienated themselves from everything that they can't even move anymore. So Dante obviously sees a lot of familiar faces here. He's 
he runs into two feuding brothers, one who's a Guelph and one a Ghibelline, who killed each other over their property. He runs into a member of the Consulary family, and that's the family that starts the feud between the whites and the blacks. He sees a Ghibelline turned Guelph who cut off the hand of a Florentine standard bearer in the middle of a battle, which threw the troops into panic. Dante actually grabs this guy by the neck and calls him a filthy traitor. This is Dante's biggest reactions come in this part of hell because everything is so emotionally charged. And then he comes on two shades who are frozen in the same hole, and one is gnawing the head of the other. And a quote from the text It was two frozen together in one hole, so that the one head capped the other head. And as starved men tear bread, this tore the pole of the one beneath, chewing with ravenous jaw where brain meets marrow, just beneath the skull. So that's pretty gross. And we're going to have to figure out why... Dante chose to depict this scene. So the chewer is Ugolino della Gerardesca, and he's an Italian noble who led the Guelphs in Pisa, which was largely a Ghibelline city. So when he becomes the chief magistrate of the city in 1284, he tries to consolidate his power. And an important thing he does here, trying to do this, he gives away a couple castles in Pisa to Florence and to another city to help build and establish alliances. And this causes trouble between him and his grandson, who's also a prominent political party in Pisa. And it causes trouble among the city's Guelph. So he doesn't want to lose his power to his grandson. So Ugolino conspires with the Ghibellines. Don't do it, Ugolino. These are, these are the enemies. And he does this to drive his grandson out of Pisa. Specifically, he's working with an Archbishop Ruggieri, who, surprise, is the head he's now gnawing on in hell. And Ruggieri betrays him in turn, as traitors often do. Um, and reminds everyone how Ugolino gave those castles away. And he's locked up in a tower with two sons and two grandsons and left to starve. But Dante insinuates that he resorts to cannibalism before death. But recently he was exhumed, where it was determined he probably couldn't have eaten meat if he wanted to because his teeth were so bad. So that's where we're going to leave Dante and Virgil behind, unless we end up doing a Julius Caesar episode at some point, because we know a couple of the guys, at least, who are a little further down in hell. But um, that that kind of sets the tone for our Halloween series of specials, right? Exactly. And since we can't always get our podcast ideas from our coworkers, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We've also got a Facebook fan page. Come and find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Mist in History. And we also have a very fabulous website where you can find out everything you wanted to know about cannibalism if you search on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Oh, 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 oh